0: This episode is brought to you by AARP. Sixteen years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting Friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash local.
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's. You did it. You stumped this charming devil.
2: Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else. Podcasts are heard video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know, I love that. And I promise you the other platforms don't offer that with Spotify for podcasters. You can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hey, everyone. Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your observations, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. I posted on the YouTube community tab about 24 hours ago. Exciting times, ATP finals right around the corner, hit triple-digit comments yet again, which feels like it's a thing every week. Maybe I'll stop saying it, but uh, I am happy to see it, and thank you for everybody who participates. I was able to pull about 18 of those comments. We'll see how many we get to. And the only thing I'll say before we get started is there were a lot of people who are like Gil. What do you think is going to happen in the ATP Finals? Or where's the ATP Finals preview content? I will look to bang that out tomorrow night. My night. Yes, that doesn't leave a lot of time between the start of the matches, which will be early Sunday morning for me. But such is the reality of my schedule this week, which has been a particularly busy week. Okay? But uh, I will be ignoring the comments that were kind of basically asking me for preview stuff, and I'll be doing that tomorrow night. So let us not waste any more time and get to the first comment from Jonathan. Could you provide some analysis on how Djokovic's movement has evolved over the course of his career? All right. We're starting things off very technical here with this comment that got 34 likes. A lot of interest here. Somewhat difficult to answer without, like, doing a real thorough film study, uh, going back and really kind of putting the two things next to each other and watching specifically for these things, because the differences would be very subtle. Now, I will say, I think some things have changed on the backhand. On the forehand, I would say almost identical. Uh, In terms of Djokovic's footwork patterns, particularly when he's moving out to his right, uh, from the very first moment he got on a tour, he was just really good at being able to run into his deuce corner and still flip his hips. And, you know, he's always been really comfortable hitting that running open stance forehand Um, in regards to his movement. On the backhand, I, I think we have seen a little bit of a change. Younger Djokovic... I feel like he used to hit it off of his right foot more often. So, you know, imagine Novak, and this is tough to do in this medium without uh, breaking down video. But imagine Djokovic moving to his left. Um, I think in the past, he would, a lot of the time, cross cross over his right foot right across his body and then hit off of his right foot. And as his hips came through and rotated... He would land slash plant on his left leg, and then he could recover to the middle. And now, I think as things have progressed, and I don't know exactly when this started, but frankly, he's been doing this for a really long time. Uh, I just don't think we as we were seeing as much of the open stance stuff when he was running out to his backhand when he was really, really young. Again, the open stance stuff, it's not like new it's certainly not new. I just don't think we were seeing a lot of it pre twenty eleven. Djokovic, uh, maybe we, maybe even in twenty eleven, he was doing that crossover step with his uh, right leg more often. Uh, so I think that's a, a bit of an evolution. What's so one of the things that's so unique about Djokovic? It's so rare. Um, most players, I, I think he's right leg dominant, based off of what I just said. Because he's always been really comfortable hitting the forehand off of the right leg. But I think when it comes to hitting the backhand off of the left leg, I think that took some developing. Which means he's probably more natural on the right. That's very normal. But most players aren't able to really ever get to the point where on a hard court or a grass court, they can slide off of both uh, both legs. That's It's an extremely rare thing that Djokovic can do. Um, Another thing, look, I'm not positive on this, but it is a theory. You know, I do wonder if he's uh, running around his forehand a little bit less nowadays and deciding to just stay in position. Um, Which would, I guess, be a product of a little bit of energy conservation. Perhaps he feels he's a fraction slower than he used to be, and therefore he, he wants to be more mindful of his court positioning, you know, to stay in good uh defensive positioning which is closer to the middle of the court. You know, those who run around their forehands at a at a very high rate, they do suffer a, a drawback or a consequence in in the way that, you know, where they they leave the deuce court open, they leave space over there. So Novak was maybe when he was more more keen on being willing to do a little bit of extra running and defending. Maybe he was willing to take that risk, use his forehand a little bit more, where now he's very selective. I'll just say, what he is right now, he's not running around to hit his forehand from the ad side unless he knows he has a really good ball to attack. You see rude and pass and Nadal... uh and Ferrer, Ferrer used to be a big-time example of this. You see them oftentimes running around their forehand just to trade or just to build. And Djokovic is not doing that. He, he has too much trust in his back end, and he doesn't think it's worth it. He'd rather stay in position. Uh, maybe we could, I guess, if there was analytics available, we could maybe see if this is true. Uh, he probably runs around a little bit less now. So that's a, another adjustment in his movement. Um, but in general, you know, a lot of it has been a lot of it has been kind of similar, slash the same throughout his career where I think he his positioning is incredible and he reads the game well. but that said, he doesn't have an extreme bias towards taking the ball early or dropping back defensively. like he he really holds a great middle ground. Um, this is something where I know, um, I know Hugh Clark with threat of order did a little big three comparison on this. And, you know, he kind of looked at Federer's preference as, uh, standing up closer on the baseline. He broke it down a lot deeper than I am going to, which is why you need to read it. Uh, but that has drawbacks. When you're up on the baseline, and by the way, commentary is way too fixated, or tennis analysis is often way too fixated on taking the ball early, highlighting, you know, correctly highlighting its offensive advantages. Yeah, you're taking time away. Yeah, you're well positioned to attack short balls and move inside the court. Great. But let's not ignore that defensively, you you are hurting your court coverage, you are sometimes rushing yourself instead of rushing your opponent. So way too often, there's kind of these blankets put on court positioning. Like if you're inside the court and on the baseline, that's good. If you're not, that's bad, which is such an antiquated, such an antiquated, ridiculous way to look at it. Um, anyway, I'm kind of rambling here, but hopefully you're enjoying the ramble. Uh, Medvedev, Zverev, or in the case of the big three comparison, you would put Nadal in here if you are um, a little bit more willing to drop back because you like the defensive advantages of that. Now, in the case of Nadal, I think his weight of shot often made up for the the ability to do damage from deep court position. In the case of Medvedev and Zverev, not so much. They're offensively limited from back there, and it's strictly a defensive Uh, posture for them, but, you know, those guys will reap the advantages defensively and suffer offensively. Just feels like Djokovic always has had that, uh, that beautiful balance between the two. I think I'm going to leave it at that. Next one is from Sports Fanatic. We haven't seen Sinner and Djokovic face on a hard court. Do you think the matchup we see in Turin or hard courts in general will change anything? Not really. Uh, you know the way their games are situated, they're very kind of modern, all surface games where nothing drastic is going to happen surface to surface between them. The main things I'm looking out for are, you know, what can Sinner, some of the some of the improvements that we've seen from Sinner that have paid dividends against Medvedev um, in the last couple times they've played. I'm just... The curiosity is, will they pay dividends or will, will they be enough against Djokovic? Because in the past, Novak has had a pretty simple path to victory against Sinner. He's going to be able to absorb the linear power really well and he's going to have a massive shot tolerance advantage and a huge consistency advantage over Yannick. So... The defense from Djokovic is really going to be a a huge asset against a sinner who uh, is not going to be able to match Djokovic in the consistency, in the shot tolerance, and despite his power, is going to have some trouble forcing errors and finding finishes, right? This sinner who is more likely to open up the court with angles, more likely to at least he was against Medvedev, to change direction on his backhand, more likely to go to the drop shot, more likely to come forward. Fit enough so that he is more likely to match Djokovic in shot tolerance. And, uh, you know, seemingly also just more consistent player from the baseline now. It's all about will the center improvements close the distance between him and Novak to me. It's not the hardcore aspect of it isn't isn't much. Now here's one other thought that just popped into my head, which is pretty crucial actually. Turin is gonna be a lot about serving. These courts are so quick that it's just it's simple fact. It's gonna be a lot about serving. So that's another thing to look for. Another improvement for Sinner, the serve. Is he gonna be able to, you know, spot serve with Novak? Keep up. Um in the free points battle with Novak, because both of them have terrific returns. And uh, I'm curious to just see, you know, we know that Djokovic on a court like this, his serve is a real bona fide weapon at this point. Is center going to be able to serve with him? Because that's going to be crucial on, on this hard court specifically. From Markov 2250 Hi Gil, loved your work. Can you give us the current closest WTA equivalent of each of the ATP top 10. Oh, you know what? I misread this question initially. And, you know, normally I don't prepare to answer these mailbag questions. I I read them. Obviously, a thought naturally goes into my head of how I'm going to answer. But it's not like I type out notes and really plan my responses. Uh, but for this one, I read this question and I'm like, all right, there's no way I can do this off the top of my head. So I took the time to make a list, but I actually read it reverse. I thought you were asking me, give me the WTA top 10 equivalent to an ATP player. So that's how I did it. So that's how we're going to do it. Cause that's what I prepared for. So I'm going to compare the WTA top 10 to an ATP player. This is a stylistic comparison. Okay. Very important. We need, we need our best. I ask of you For the YouTube commenters, your best and your everybody, everybody commenters, your best listening skills right now, there are going to be instances where the, how good the players are at tennis, there's going to be a wide disparity. They're not going to be comparable in that way. There are also going to be instances in which their technique is completely different. I might compare someone with a one-hander to a two-hander. I might compare a lefty to a righty, okay? look out for that as well. I'm not talking about technique. If I were taking technique into account here, I I wouldn't find two players that are remotely similar because uh, I mean maybe maybe occasionally I would find an ATP WTA crossover that would make sense and their strengths and weaknesses are similar and their philosophy on you know how they're trying to win points are similar and their technique is similar. And their athletic makeup is similar. Like, maybe that would happen, but rarely. So I've thrown technique out. I'm not looking at technique. And I'm looking at, basically, styles, strengths, and weaknesses. I'm not going to go crazy with my explanations here long. Like, I could do two minutes defending each and every one. And I'm just not going to do that because I don't want to. All right. Number one, Iga Sviantek, her comparison is Rafa Nadal. Highest RPM forehand in women's tennis. It's a forehand that's clearly inspired by Nadal specifically. Uh, Not to mention some of the most explosive court coverage and athleticism on the tour. Combined with a a two-handed backhand that is probably underrated in its quality and its versatility. And uh, a serve that could be better. Number two, Sabalenka. Her comparison for me is Denis Shapovalov. They're going to try to obliterate every ball in sight. The movement is underrated. Like Both of them are really good athletes. They can scoot. But it's kind of overshadowed by the fact that they aren't really willing to play a lot of defense. And they'd rather go big. And when they're making balls in the court, it is overwhelming and pretty tough to deal with. Sometimes they're going to give you a lot of misses, a lot of errors. Number three, Coco Goff. She is pretty similar to the big serving counter punchers, in my opinion. Uh, My comparison for Goff is Medvedev and Zverev. Her better ground stroke is the backhand, just like those two. She is on the, the high end of first serve speed on the WTA tour and her defense is phenomenal and she's not afraid to lean on her defense and to make those extra balls and trust her legs and make that her calling card. Number four, Ribakina. I had to go to a retired player for Ribakina's comparison and it's Tomas Burdich. Just smooth, easy power on both ground strokes, forehand and backhand. Uh, excellent serve, albeit Rebakina relatively speaking, probably more dominant than Burdich's serve. actually definitely more dominant. Uh, that said, Burdich was still a good server and both of them also have that icy cold, calm temperament. very, very stable emotionally as players. I think that's a great comparison if I do so if I do say so myself. Number five, Pagula. This one might be a little bit controversial, but for me, Jess Begula is like Djokovic and Murray. Yeah, she does not have the elite athleticism, the movement, or maybe even the endurance that Djokovic and Murray have slash had. But other than that, like if you just ignore the, the legs and the athleticism part of it, the way she goes about. Her baseline game is super similar to them. She redirects as much as possible. She does so at an extremely high level. She absorbs pace at a very high level. Her depth is immaculate. Her consistency is outstanding. And one area where she's similar to Djokovic and Murray in the movement category is her balance. When she runs to her corners she is able to stay on balance as well as anybody.
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
0: This episode is brought to you by AARP. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting Friends, a work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at AARP.org
2: local. Number six, Anz Comparison for her is Fabio Fanini. Just so talented with the racket where, you know, she makes up for any limitations, any mild limitations that Anjabur has when it comes to movement are just easily made up for with the fact that her hands are impeccable. Her timing is unbelievable. Her precision off the ground is tremendous. She she can hit big, just like Fanini. They can hit big, uh, but it's really just a can't-teach level of shot-making that both of them have in their possession. That is what makes them so great as players. Not to mention, they both heavily favor the slice serve. Seven in the world, Marketa Vondrosova. This is a deep cut for the ATP player, but I think it's a pretty good comparison. And if you know his game well, I think you'll agree. Alex Molchan. They both absolutely love to hit the backhand drop shot. In this case, they're both lefties. Uh, They have high, heavy uh, forehands where, you know, oftentimes the net clearance is very high and it makes their forehands difficult to attack. Uh, It makes it so that oftentimes their forehands are able to jump up above the righty strike zone Uh, When they have a forehand to attack, certainly they can flatten out that trajectory. But in general, it's the backhand that comes off much flatter, much lower. And really, they use their variety, their point construction, their athleticism uh, as their main attributes, not so much their power. They're not going to hit you off the court. Number eight, Karolina Muhova. And for me, the comparison is easily Roger Federer the smoothness in her transition game, the gracefulness in which she defends her willingness to come forward, her great slice backhand. Um, she is an excellent spot server, doesn't have the pace of Sabalenka or Ibakina, but oftentimes gets similar reward as them because of uh, the precision in her serve. So uh Mukhova, yeah, two-handed backhand, but to me, the comparison is Federer. Number nine, Sakari. This was tough for me to figure out. Who on tour is Maria Sakari? But I landed on Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. Uh, just a terrific ceiling and potential where there are elite skills offensively there are also, because of the speed around the court, elite skills defensively, but sometimes it's just figuring out how to put it together, how to be consistent off the ground, how to hold it together under pressure. You know, these are their weaknesses where their strengths are are actually quite well-rounded as players where, uh, again, they can be elite offensively and defensively. It's just some of the peripheral things that get in their way. And finally, Barbora Krechikova is the world number 10 on the w- WTA tour. Uh my comparison for Krejcikova is uh is Sebastian Korda. Offensive player, doesn't have a huge serve to complement that offensive game. Uh but she she has really a smooth ground game. Ball comes off her racket pretty hard even even though she's very in control and not necessarily looking as if she's swinging that hard, and she's changing direction, particularly off of her backhand, which is very hard to read. Both of them have that in common. Uh, They both do that very well. You know, attack with the backhand. Forehand has some offensive capability as well, but I think in the case of both of them, it's just a little bit more temperamental. And there you have it. The WTA top 10 compared to ATP players, style-wise. I'll try to start moving through these more quickly because I'm going way too slow so far. Uh, Next one is from Itmar8721. I don't know why I even bother reading the number. Like, what good does that do? Okay. Have Tsitsipas and Zverev already reached the peak of their careers, or do you see them making it higher than what they did at their best? This is an interesting question. Ultimately, I'm at a stage with both of them where I don't think at any point in their career they're just going to be drastically better players than what we've seen thus far. I think that stage of their career in terms of constant development, it, it appears over. I mean, trajectory would suggest that. Very much so with Zverev. And in a less extreme way, but still pretty convincing case, that Tsitsipas is also done rapidly improving. That said, at their age, they still should have a bunch of years left towards the top of the game. And when you consistently are able to put yourself in the mix, and both Tsitsipas and Zverev are good enough to put themselves in the mix consistently, you're likely going to have moments. You're going to have your tournament, you're going to have your run, whether it be you're just doing a couple of things a little bit better than you usually do any given week. Or the draw opens up any given week. Or the draw doesn't open up, but like some of your opponents are not quite at their best. The point is, stuff happens, and if you're a Zverev and or a Pass, yeah, like maybe, maybe at no point in their careers are they going to ever finish year-end top three back to back. Okay. Like if I'm a betting man, I would say neither of them ever do that. That said, if they, let's say, I don't know, win a major, then we'll probably look at that as, oh, they've reached a peak in their career. They've, they've reached a, a level that they previously had never been at. And sometimes maybe we can be inaccurate when it comes to that. And in reality, it's not that they got better. It's just that their moment happened. Like, take Daniil Medvedev, for example. I think Daniil Medvedev has been pretty much, roughly, okay? And I, I, don't wanna, I don't want this to sound like a bad thing. It's really not. I think he's been roughly the same player since 2019. The end of 2019. Other than him, of course, being worse last year for various reasons. That was circumstantial. But I think he's been pretty much the same player. That means... That Medvedev was good enough to win a major if things broke right in 2020, and then he was good enough to win a major in 2021, clearly, and he did it. And then, yeah, the circumstances were bad. Last year, some stuff got in the way of him having a decent season by his standards. And then this year, I think he's been good enough to win a major if things go well. He's just at that level where it could go either way and things have to break right for him. I don't think that Medvedev was suddenly better in 2021 and that's why he won a major. No, I I just think stuff worked out for him at the 2021 US Open and he won a major. So I think that's the way to look at it for Titi and Verev. Have they peaked? I would say yes, but they can maintain a peak and reach heights and and find new accomplishments that they have yet to uh they have yet to capture in their careers and they can have a very fruitful and very rewarding next, you know, 3-4 years of their career. That's the hope. If you're at Tsitsipas or a, a Zverev, it's not that you're suddenly or that they're suddenly going to get drastically better. It's that they are going to have these moments if they continue to put themselves in the mix of the best players in the world, and they go deep in majors consistently. The, the hope is that it just breaks right for them at some point. Next one's from Ashley. Uh, why do you think Alcaraz struggles on fast indoor hard courts? I kind of covered this in the last mailbag when the person asked me about Nadal and Alcaraz and if they're going to struggle similarly on indoor hardcourt. Um, so I'm not going to take a long time with this. It has to do with the serve, not just the fact that the serve is a little bit weaker uh writ large but also because the serve that he hits well is the kick serve the serve that he relies on is the kick serve and uh that is diminished as a weapon Uh, i think in general his forehand is just a better shot when he has more time his drop shot is just a better weapon when he has more time And schedule-wise, he's been beat up and worn down post-US Open. And correct me if I'm wrong, he's played clay in February. So we haven't seen him play indoor hardcourt in February. So not to mention the sample size, it's pretty small, right? It's two US, It's two post-US Open hardcourt runs since Alcaraz has actually been Alcaraz. And that's really all we've gotten to see. So yeah, that's my answer. It's all of those things combined. Uh, Let's see what happens as his career continues. Because I'm not convinced that it's going to be as... I'm not convinced that it's going to be like Nadal. And, you know, he's not going to win a year-end championship in his career. I'm, I'm not convinced of that. Next one's from Tim Japan. Is Djokovic the clear favorite here? Here meeting Turin ATP Finals. I've heard the serve takes on a more important role in winning matches indoors. Hmm, I wonder where he heard that. Which of the other seven contenders would Nole be giving up any ground to on the serve? I think it is Medi. He seems to have the best serve in this field. Could you talk a little bit about Nole's serve, the serve index, and rank serves one through eight giving reasons? I'd be very interested. Thank you. Well, sure. I, I think the serve levels in this top eight are basically three-tiered. There are some nuances within the tiers, but I think it goes like this. I think uh, tier one would be Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev, and Tsitsipas. Uh, Medvedev and Zverev have the big first-serve weapons. They bring the pace. They're going to hit the most aces. They might get the most on returns just off the power of their serve alone, uh, but their second serves do not compare to Djokovic's second serve or Tsitsipas' second serve. Uh, Tsitsipas and Djokovic are better spot servers, you know, more about hitting their spots than the other two. So I think that those four are the tier one guys. Then I think there's a tier in the middle with Yannick Sinner and. Oh, and, and Rublev. Yeah, Sinner and Rublev, where if their first serves are on, they can have matches where they're getting a ton of purchase out of their first serve. It can be a real weapon for them. Uh, Sinner may be encroaching on on Tier 1 here, depending on— I don't know, we got to continue to see him develop. Uh, red hot over the course of the Asian swing, the serve. I just got to see it for a little bit longer before I can vault him up to uh, the Tier 1 status. Uh, but also then there, there will be some matches where they're— actually not getting as much help out of their serve as they want. I'd say that's the tier two. And then the tier three would be Rude and Alcaraz, where they're not getting as much out of their serve on a regular basis as what they would like. So that's all. Um, I think I answered that question. Next one is from Member Tuck. Hi, Gil. Great work on calling T2 matches. Thank you for watching. Appreciate that. Uh, Do you think all the concern over Alcaraz's health in the long term is overblown? Similar things were said about Nadal, and he managed quite a long run. I assume Team Alcaraz has even more at their disposal than Nadal did 15-plus years ago. Also, any predictions on who— Okay, yeah, predictions will be tomorrow night, as I mentioned. Well, the hope for Alcaraz is that he will not have to do a Nadal. Because— Although Nadal had a long is is having I should say is having a long career which is still going and has had success into his 30s you don't aspire to do what Nadal has done which is miss a lot of majors what is it like about 3 years worth of majors that he's missed 3 or 4 maybe, maybe even maybe even 4 rehab a lot Yeah, you don't want that. I mean, Alcaraz hopes that he has a healthier career than Nadal. That is the hope. And I still think that he probably will. The evidence, I mean, yeah, it hasn't been smooth sailing in the fitness in the health department, I should say, for for Alcaraz. And there have been some bumps in the road. uh, But there hasn't been anything, for example, nearly as catastrophic as the foot stuff that Nadal was going through in in 2004 and the knee stuff that Rafa was having like the knee tendonitis stuff that was another thing that was a constant in his career. I don't see anything for Alcaraz that's been kind of repetitive and lingering and pesky uh like like Nadal's knees. So those those things bode well. I still don't think Alcaraz has had you know a single injury that's been super concerning in his career thus far. Next one is from top everything. Hey Gil, really love your in-depth analysis best on YouTube. Thank you. I started playing tennis watching Djokovic, so I'm curious. Question: How Djokovic seemed how did Djokovic seem more tired at the end of 21 at age 34 than in 2023 where he seems to have more energy left? yet he played more tournaments this year has his fitness gone up a level at 36 uh well first of all just fact checking you on the the number of tournaments he's played it's the same so he's going to end 2023 having played 12 tournaments and in 2021 it was the exact same number so he's definitely hit a sweet spot i think when it when it comes to his scheduling Uh, He knows exactly what he wants to do. Obviously, you throw in the Sunshine Double with this year's scheduling, and it would have him up at 13, and that would probably be the ideal for him. Um, Has his fitness gone up? I mean, I don't know. We're we're nitpicking 2021 here. Remember, he was dominant in 2021. Uh, The circumstances that led to the depletion of energy in the Medvedev U.S. Open final was really extenuating circumstances. You had an Olympic year. You had the fact that, you know, he was tight in these matches and therefore he wasn't finishing them clinically. So all throughout that U.S. Open run, four-setter, 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 five-setter in the semis. And then in the final, you know, I just think if Novak was able to play better tennis, he wouldn't have been playing as much tennis and route to the final. And then there was the career grand slam pressure so it wasn't just volume, not not career calendar, Grand Slam pressure. So it wasn't just the volume of matches played. It was also the significance and the emotional uh, strain that holding that weight of history kind of carries for Novak. Yeah, there were so many things. So I wouldn't I wouldn't use twenty twenty one as an example. Uh, you know, if you want to say that his fitness was worse than it is right now, uh, but yeah, he's doing a lot of things to to mitigate the decline of his fitness. First of all, there are things that we won't know that he's doing because he keeps these things close to the vest. Uh, He's very scientific about these things. He is constantly, uh, constantly experimenting and tinkering and going the extra mile when it comes to, when it comes to diet and recovery and uh, keeping himself healthy and keeping himself fit, right? We know that. And, you know, he's not going to be open about his methods to the fullest extent, although, Uh, you know, I don't know. He he said some stuff to Graham Bensinger in in that interview. I I remember.
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
0: This episode is brought to you by AARP. Sixteen years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting Friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash local.
2: So yeah, it's hard to answer. It's hard to answer this question. Um, um beyond that, you know, we, we don't know some of the stuff that he does, but he does a lot of it, and he's passionate about it, and he's mindful of his rest and he's mindful of his scheduling, and he's uh, taken some some point shortening uh, adaptations as well, serving bigger, coming forward more. A little bit more aggressive on the shot selection in the the court positioning at times, choosing his spots to to dig in and and grind, and then also feeling certain parts of the match where, okay, I'm not going to do that. I am going to go big. I'm going to bail out of the rally because I know it's going to be better for me winning the match in the long run. Uh, Novak is making these decisions where nowadays, or not nowadays, back in his athletic prime, he just didn't need to make those decisions. He could just go all out every point. He doesn't do that anymore next one from uh Pisayi. hi gil when coaching was approved by the atp there was a lot of speculation regarding how this may impact players quality and fan engagement however it seems it has barely changed anything when djokovic's comments or, or with djokovic's comments quote i'm happy we are able to freely communicate rather than hiding from a chair umpire like we did for years Do you think this shows that on-court coaching was always happening to a significant degree but was just concealed better? Or do you think the lack of impact uh, comes from on-court coaching being overrated as less coachable aspects like focus, emotional control, and overall mentality are more important than technical slash tactical aspects? Okay, so the real question here in this comment is why does it seem like coaching has barely changed anything, which is a premise that... I don't know like if I fully agree with it, right? I think there have been some tournaments where it's been a large topic of conversation, specifically the large Masters 1000s where two things were true. One, the box was mic'd up and the director and the producer of the ATP broadcast were taking the audio often. And two, usually it was Alcaraz, Juan Carlos Ferrero situations. So you, you had... A coach-player uh, duo that was very active in uh, in taking advantage of the legalized coaching. Whereas sometimes it's happening, but it's going to seem like nothing's changed because the broadcast simply isn't taking the audio. Sometimes it can be happening, but we can't even engage with the subject matter matter because we don't speak the language that the coach is speaking to their player, which happens has happened at least in my experience as someone who um, embarrassingly only speaks English and can read Spanish, but usually when it's spoken, it's happening too fast for me to understand it. Um, Yeah. That is why sometimes it feels like it hasn't changed anything Uh, to the degree that it is overrated as a as a decider of wins and losses, yes, that is also part of it. Uh, Also part of it might be that usually the better tennis player wins the tennis match. That is to say that there is not a coach in the universe. The most brilliant, genius, unbelievably, fantastically mastermind, wonderkind, Ted Lasso, it doesn't matter what coach You have in the match, you're never going to get uh, Laszlo Gera to consistently beat Novak Djokovic. I don't know why I chose Laszlo Gera. I just had to pick a player. Okay, leave me alone. So, yeah, I mean, that's part of it as well. Uh, your, Your other suggestion that, oh, it's always been happening. Therefore, the legalization just doesn't feel like that big a change. I don't know. I I just think it's happening more. You know, I mean, I understand what Novak is basically saying. I'm glad we can just freely do it. I'm glad that the communication doesn't need to be like super subtle and maybe with some hand signs. And um, Novak's just saying, I'm glad that we can just be completely open about it. Um, But I, I think if I followed up with Novak and I said, are you receiving more coaching than you used to? I do believe his answer would also be, Uh, Yes, yes, the, the amount of coaching because I don't need to hide from a chair umpire has gone up. Does that make sense? Next one is from Hank Jesse. The Paris Masters is always cool to watch because I feel like they show court level perspective more often. My roommates who aren't into tennis were watching some with me just because they thought the angle made it look cooler. I think that even something as simple as court level shots would really help to make tennis more exciting to watch? Why does Paris seem to do it more? And why isn't it done more often? Why does Paris seem to do it more? I think the answer is because their high up camera sucks. I think that's the answer. Uh, if if you'll notice with Paris, the court is distorted on the high up camera. Uh, I, I forget the physics of this, but Uh, The court in Paris, on the normal angle, it looks like a square, okay? And because it looks like a square and the court is distorted, uh, the ball just doesn't look like it's traveling very fast, even though it is. So I appreciate that they don't— obviously, they sometimes use the high-up angle because it just gives you a better view of the player on the far side, a much better view at that. And you can kind of see the construction of the point better from up there. Uh, But I do appreciate that because their high angle isn't the best, they switch things up. They go to low angle where you can see the speed of the shots, the trajectory of the shots really well, uh, the explosiveness and the speed of the play. But the real problem with that down low angle, and I know it's very popular in spurts and people really like it including myself, I like it too, when they go to it on occasion. I'm telling you for an entire match, and there should be studies on this, there should be focus groups done on this, but I don't think it's for the best, honestly. Um, I think there's a sweet spot here. You have to find a middle, but on some of these low camera angles, you lose the player on the far side of the court. You just, you're not really... You're not really seeing, you don't have a good angle of where the ball is landing on the far side of the court, and you're just kind of losing the connection with that player. And it's all about the near side player. And that's the problem with that camera angle. But, you know, it should be used a lot. And uh, I love it on social media. Like, I think for social media clips, the low angle's great. Uh, especially, again, especially when the player on the near side does something cool. Next one from Anonymous. Hey Gil, is it a concern that Yannick Sinner has not been able to produce big results or make deep runs when playing back-to-back tournaments in best of three? An example of this can be seen after Beijing, where he won the title, and then shortly afterwards he's unable to sustain tennis at a high level when he fell to Ben Shelton in Shanghai. I do think Shelton played amazing in that match, but okay. Uh, I get your point. Your point is correct. What is the cause of this, and do you think this is why he has underperformed in best of five? Yeah, I think you're directionally onto something here. I don't think Yannick Sinner is fully formed when it comes to his uh, physical durability, his ability to bounce back after making deep tournament runs. Like physically, he hasn't been there, and he's been getting there. He's been getting better and better. So when I'm answering this question, it's almost like, yes, I think there's a lot of validity to the observation, But the way you started is, is it a concern to that? I would say, no, it's not a concern because he can, he's consistently shown to be on the path where next year, this probably won't be an issue anymore. Remember last year, we were in a place where Yannick would be worn down by the quarters, by the semis. Like he was playing great tennis in the first three, three or so matches. Then by the fourth and the fifth, he just wouldn't be the same player anymore. So we're continuing to progress. This year, that wasn't an issue for for Sinner. That's why it's not a concern, because uh, I think he's well on track. From anonymous tennis follower. Hi Gil, I've seen many people say that Sviantek will never win a Wimbledon title because her game is just not suited to grass. Personally, I disagree. Her results on grass, while weaker in comparison to her results on other surfaces, have shown generally steady improvement over the years. With her making the Wimbledon quarterfinals this year after third round in 2022 and fourth round in 2021, she has also shown a strong desire to want to master the surface, saying she quote wants to become that kind of player who can play well on grass as well as feel comfortable there. And she seems to be a very fast learner. I could be biased because I'm her fan, but I think that her hunger and her ability to learn new things, plus the upward trajectory of her grass results, are much more relevant in evaluating her future prospects on grass than her grass game in its current form. If Nadal, with such a clay-oriented game, can win two Wimbledon titles, why can't Svantec win one? What are your thoughts? Um, My thoughts are that I fully and wholeheartedly agree with you. I think this is a good comment. Attitude is really important when it comes to a surface that you're only going to be playing on three weeks out of the year because we have seen it is possible to just be like, eh, meh, not for me. And to just be like, yeah, no. We've seen this with a lot of players. I mean, maybe not a lot of top players, but I mean, Caspar Ruud, and I've been critical of Kasparud. I've been critical that that he's had this I'm just not going to play well on grass attitude because I strongly believe that in the current day, the modern grass at Wimbledon, there is no reason why you can't make it work if you are an elite baseliner. doesn't really matter what your game is. You should be able to make it work. You should. I mean, Marketa Vondrosova won Wimbledon this year. She's not a... She doesn't serve big. She doesn't hit flat on her forehand. She defends a lot. Come on. The old days of grass tennis, they're over. Everybody, if they put their mind to it, they get comfortable moving on the surface. And that's an important key to it. If they get comfortable moving on the surface, which Iga... Uh, being the athlete she is, I don't think it'll take her that long. Um, they can do it. They can do it. So uh, Nadal, Nadal's attitude, crucially, you know, let me just put a bow on, on that point that you made. Rafa wanted Wimbledon, and he wanted it badly. He wanted it more than he wanted the Australian Open and the U.S. Open. And uh, that attitude that he brought to Wimbledon, even though he could have been like, look, Clays my surface. I'm winning French Opens. So it's really, you know, it's not ideal. And remember that they were really they were even closer together. Not ideal. Two weeks later, I gotta play Wimbledon. Nah, forget it. No, that was not his attitude whatsoever. Uh so I think Ega will probably win a Wimbledon title. Also, let's uh I always like to do this with the Ega conversation. Uh, You just throw her age into, into the conversation as well. You know, her being 22 should also be factored in. All right, next one from David. Hi Gil, love your videos. Was just wondering, what are your thoughts on Zverev's comeback from injury versus team's comeback from injury? Zverev didn't play for the second half of last year, but he has done an amazing job this year with regaining his mojo and being one of the best players in the world, managing to qualify for the ATP Finals in Turin. Meanwhile, Team has struggled ever since his injury to get anywhere close to his form pre-injury, and in fact is barely in the top 100 this year despite playing a full season. What do you think are the reasons for such a difference in the results of both Zverev and Team post-injury? Yeah, there are a lot of different directions I can go with this, and you know the coverage of Dominic Team I'm sure will continue. I don't want to get too in the weeds with him right now, but there's a major difference. There is a major difference between the two. Zverev was playing the best tennis of his life at the moment he got injured. Team uh team was not, you know, team was having a very difficult 2021 season. He had just lost first round at Roland Garros to Pablo Andujar and uh he was struggling. It seemed like he was struggling to put in the work off court. He was burnt out. But that's a theory is that the same things we were seeing before he got injured, there're still problems for him. So Zverev didn't have that. And then when it comes to the injury in itself, you know, the other theory for team is that the reason his forehand just isn't the same, and believe me, it's not the same. And it's not even close. Go back and watch highlights, remind yourself what the team forehand was. Um it's not the same. And maybe, you know, there is something about the the strength And the flexibility of the right wrist that after the surgery, it was just never going to be as good, which is a little bit rare in modern medicine. You know, usually these surgeries are pretty good and you can get back to it. But think about Del Potro, man. Del Potro's two-handed backhand was never the same after his left wrist surgery. So I think the wrist surgery thing, all things considered, that's worse than rolling over an ankle. And, and breaking your ankle when it comes to the the ability to recover from that. That's worse. Let's end on this one from Dorioku. Is this the strongest ATP Finals field we've had in a while? Half the players are past champions, Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, and three of the other four have had great success indoors, Rublev, Sinner, Runa. And then there's Alcaraz, who can beat anyone, anywhere, if he's at 100%. Last year, I didn't have any hopes for half the players in the contest. Rude, Fritz, Nadal, Rublev. And that seems to be my thought going back a few years, maybe because top players weren't as good indoors as everywhere else. Uh, This year feels different. I really think this year anyone can win. Djokovic is obviously the favorite, but he wasn't as razor sharp as I thought he'd be in Paris. But I expect him to make adjustments given his experience last week. Thoughts? I'll just speak to the, the the first part of this comment. Is this the strongest ATP fields, ATP finals field we've had in a while? Look, I I hadn't thought about it until now, but yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And this is a byproduct of you know what we what we've been saying the last two years, which is that this these top players in the top ten of the ATP, they're all really really young. And they're getting better quickly. And we looked at, you know, a guy in Yannick Sinner who wasn't in the top ten. Um, a guy in in Runa who wasn't there yet, wasn't in the top ten um, at the start of this year. Everybody's, you know, kind of healthy. Also, right? Zverev was kind of an omission last year, where you knew that he would have been in it if he had been healthy. Everybody's seemingly healthy. So, yeah, it is. It's a really, really deep field. And Alcaraz was injured last year, of course, as well uh, for the year-end championships. Rublev has had the best year of his career, arguably. So, you know, even, even though he's made it four years in a row, it feels like he's maybe a more dangerous version of himself. He's got big title under his belt now. Yeah. I I just all I can all I can do is agree with you that this field is loaded it's stacked it's high powered and uh, that is a great way to end it I'll have some thoughts some preview thoughts on the ATP finals coming up in about 24 hours from the time this video gets posted hope you enjoyed don't forget to subscribe I'll see you next time
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest
2: but let me play devil's
1: advocate here let's see so. No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor.
0: You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel.